it's important to have a growth mindset. So if you put somebody on a performance plan, it's not the exit door on ramp. Give them the opportunity to step up and grow and make changes because otherwise you don't have a growth mindset. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, this podcast is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman. And I'm Karina Owens, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reveal. On this episode, we have a fabulous guest with us, Helen Finici, a best-selling author, sales leader, and team builder at Microsoft, and a walking treasure chest just full of wisdom for, for us. She talks about all things and brings the L word into sales enablement. Yes, the word love. Helen really brings a lot to the table in this episode by providing a survival guide for leading your teams and maximizing performance. Danny, I know I couldn't take this one with you. Give me some deets here. What was the talk like with Helen? It was as if we had a like tell all from the mother goose of sales. I mean, Helen has been evangelizing not just again using love with your teams, which I know can be taboo and is increasingly becoming more commonplace. But the idea of not necessarily shackling your teams to parameters or confines that are unnatural for them. And I know that's especially top of mind as we think about, does everyone have to go back and be in the office five days a week, three days a week, whatever it may be, but really thinking about putting your people at the forefront of everything it is that you do. And if you have that sense of love in the team, all the rest of the outputs then trickle down as dividends. So really excited for our listeners to hear Helen's philosophical approach, way ahead of her time, in fact, in celebrating if remote and hybrid is the right environment for your sales teams, let them do it. And not to say that it's, again, carte blanche, it's the right thing for everyone, but I think Helen will help shed light on some of those things that we're all contending with as we think about, hey, what is the right set of sort of parameters in which we're going to make our people work in an office, work from out of. So excited for you and our listeners to hear, Karina, anything else? Same. No. Well, I love that we're getting to put the spotlight on Helen. So let's just dive right in. Helen, thank you so much for coming to Reveal. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, as I described your exhaustive pedigree, I'd like to first start (laughs) with your time as an author. So folks who are listening, if you're not familiar, Helen has a book, Love Your Team, a survival guide for sales managers in the operative term, a hybrid world. So maybe tell us a little bit about what possessed you with all the things that you could write about. What is it about this topic? Hell, why even write a book? Let's start there. Yeah, well, I met my uh, now husband almost four years ago. And during COVID, so he's the CEO of a tech company. And during COVID, he heard me coaching my team of sellers. And I was like, you know, what you do is different. And I thought sales management was kind of a BS job. You hire somebody, put them in a quota, give them a quota, put them in a territory, and they either work out or they don't. And he says, what you do is really different. You should write a book. And I'm like, eh, I don't think so. But then during like July of 21, I was giving a keynote at a conference on retaining top talent. If you recall, like 4 million people were resigning a month. And so when I got to the slide, okay, what, what should, what's my advice for sales leaders to retain talent? What was authentic to me was love your team. 
And I put that as my top bullet. And I said, you know, I'm really nervous about using the L word in business, you know, in a conference. But then I unpacked it and why I feel that really focusing on your team is a differentiator and a game changer for managers, no matter what discipline, but particularly for sales leaders. And I realized that I had a point of view that was needed, unique, what have you. And I decided to write a book kind of shortly after that conference. And I decided to make it into kind of a literally a survival guide, a how to book. Because when I reflected on the on what I do as a sales leader, it's I have conversations with my team. And, you know, I'm a MIT trained engineer. So I thought, okay, well, what conversations am I having? So I did like a little research on myself and noted the conversations. I distilled it into 17 conversations, which is really the guts of okay. the book. And the, the first set is about conversations of connection. Because if you don't have a trust and a connection with your team, it's really hard to be an effective leader. So thinking about at macro scale in the last, let's even say three to five years, there've been huge tectonic paradigm shifts. And I think power dynamics between employer and employee. And then let's even contrast that from our parents' generation where you were a company man or woman, you paid your dues for a few decades and you took your pension and the employer wielded all influence and control. And then what you cite back in 2021, we have the great resignation. And then especially in tech now, which makes up a lot of our listenership, well, now you have wide sweeping layoffs. So we're all getting whipsawed in who wields the control in this exchange between employee and employer. And I'm wondering, as you thought about writing this book, does love and loving your team, the L word, does that have to persist in spite of who's got the upper hand? Or do you have a point of view on do the employees, as I think a lot of us now have come to accept, the employees have all the leverage given the pervasive adoption of things like recruiting via LinkedIn and so forth. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I have been managing teams over 25 yeah. years and, you know, hybrid teams, actually international teams, U.S. wide teams, people in the office with me, people remote. So I've been doing that for 25 years. And early on when I started as a manager, I thought my job was to tell people what to do. And I quickly realized that they had way better ideas than I did and how they approached the job. And so that my job was to set kind of outcome-based goals and expectations. And so I think there's, so there's always a market for top talent. And I like to say, actually, your top talent is your number one customer. A manager can't make their quota. A sales manager can't make their quota if they can't retain talent because of the disruption of losing a seller, the disruption to the revenue flow, the relationships. And so getting back kind of to your question about who has the power and and is it still relevant? Yes, it's still relevant because it's really by amplifying and supporting your team that you maximize your performance and results. And, you know, I like to say, put your ego at the door as a manager and focus on your team, find out what they care about on their terms and how are you going to help them be successful? 
And particularly now when employees have options, even though people are getting laid off, every company on the planet is your competition for talent because you know you can work from anywhere. And some employees value flexibility of where and when they work, some value promotions, some value maximizing revenue, some value, you know, work-life balance. There's a variety of things they care about. So how can you help support them? And then you become known as an, a great manager and an attractor of top talent and supporting your team. So it's kind of a virtuous thing. It's interesting that you talk about what is your reputation as a leader in both cultivating the extension, then subsequently attracting that top talent. I can distinctly remember my own journey as a professional, Helen. I was applying for a role and I asked the hiring manager, I said, hey, like what's beyond this role? Like, hey, I want to know like what is my growth trajectory and thinking about ambition and pursuit of bigger and better things beyond the confines and parameters of what was in that JD. I got dinged for it. In fact, they actually said, hey, if you're not happy or satisfied with the role that we're hiring you for right now, you're probably not the right guy for the job. And it made me as the candidate feel like, hey, I was under their thumb and really disenfranchised me. And while I didn't get that role in hindsight and thinking about your point of view and philosophy, how would you advise hiring managers and recruiting teams to, if this is the right call, given your prowess and expertise, to actually celebrate that ambition, even as a new hire comes into your organization? Gosh, the good, when I, <laughs> I'm going to date myself yeah. here, but when I, my first job was at IBM. And when I joined IBM, there was this concept of employment for yeah. life. And I know people like go, what, what? But anyway, so I always think, okay, I'm a stop on my team's, my employees' career journey. So nothing lasts forever. And how can I help them be the best they can be in the job to deliver results, develop their talents? And I can go into more examples about how I go about doing that. But also if they have the ambition to be a manager, how can I support that so that we all, you know, we all get better as a result. And so last year I had three of my uh, sellers got promoted to management at Microsoft. And, um, you know, so they, I had people shadow me. I had people, some of them do my forecast calls when I was on vacation and things like that. And also spent a lot of time on some of the things that I thought were fundamental kind of leadership skills. And because I was writing the book at the same time I was coaching them, I went through some things about the conversations that I typically have and the insights I had as a result of writing the book as I dug into it. Although at that point, I don't think I shared with any of them that I was actually writing a book. But that was really satisfying in my book on the kind of the advanced praise section, I have only people that worked for me that are talking about me that have been on the receiving end of my management going back 25 years and as recent as in the last year. So it's a variety of people in different roles because I've led, I ran Sun Microsystems Executive Briefing Center globally. I led a marketing team and of course sales yeah. teams. And so, 
you become known as a strong leader and developer of talent. And you've also, I believe you've got to be intentional about keeping your network strong and your pipeline of talent to hire. And right now, for sure, jobs are tight. There's not as much hiring going on. And getting back to that power dynamic, I think companies are testing the water to see if they can get away with requiring employees to come in three days a week. You see Amazon doing that, AWS doing that. I've also heard about it from other companies. And I think it could be a ploy to get employees to resign and not having to pay severance. Or it could be, let's see if we can gain some ground on this flexibility thing. Because often, well, the data is that senior leaders want people in the office and employees don't want to come to the office for the most part. They want flexibility. Can hybrid and remote sales jobs actually be beneficial? How's it changed the selling landscape? Let's dive into this topic with some data. According to a LinkedIn report, 64% of those who transitioned to remote sales in 2020 met or exceeded their revenue targets. And now 68% of sales leaders plan to implement a hybrid or fully remote sales model due to the benefits. Why do you ask? Well, according to the data, sales video calls are just as effective as in-person meetings. Sometimes customers even prefer this. It's more self-service. It gives a remote first selling environment and sellers are actually making interactions with customers and they're much more personalized as a result. All right, that's enough data for today. Let's get back and hear more from Helen. This is actually my next question. So you're anticipating where the puck is going, that classic Wayne Gretzky quote, <laughs> Helen. In the power dynamics, there's a standoff now, and we even see Benioff as publicly as a few quarters ago say, Salesforce missed, and one of the smoking guns has to deal with a lack of productivity, especially for early in career hires who benefit from that camaraderie and the osmosis of being in the office. And yet, we have all grown accustomed during the pandemic to still being successful in remote environments that lend themselves to us more dictating when we choose to work and not work. So I'm wondering will we see a rebellion? And for someone who in the title of her book talks about the hybrid world, you've been a pioneer of that flexibility and being incredibly employee friendly. Can we debunk Benioff or Amazon's beliefs that it has to be three days a week? Can it be successfully executed, especially with the technology that we've got five days a week? Talk to us about that. Yeah. So I think that Yes, we can have hybrid and flexible yeah. work permanently and be productive and deliver the results. Now, I think some things will look different. So for example, regarding early in career individuals. So I have some on my team and you've got to be more intentional about making sure that they have peer mentors and more experienced colleagues that can help show them the ropes. Also, I really encourage them to broaden their network and help, and I help them with that so that they are learning the business and have a bigger network that they can tap into as they grow in the individual job they have, but also more broadly in the company. And I also think we've got to be intentional about having them move around in different parts of the organization. There is, uh, I know everyone really wants to get together in yeah. person and because of the tight 
travel budgets, particularly in tech and layoffs, that's really not feasible. But one of the things that I think over time will happen is we'll do more get togethers that are centered around maybe it's a in-person training that happens for a cohort of people, or maybe it's a customer executive visit in Redmond, as an example, and that you do a team you know, meeting, it, depending on how many people need to be at the executive visit, or an industry conference. I'm going to a dinner in a couple of weeks that is in conjunction with a, a industry conference with the partners that work with that company. And so I think things will look a bit different. And I do think that we haven't figured out all of what needs to be put in place for the early in career, culture building, things like that. You know, we just went through at Microsoft, we just went through from Satya and his leadership down team down through the whole company, conducting a culture conversation half of our employees joined during the pandemic. And so it was to provide a framework and foundation for everyone in the organization, reorient them to our values, our worldview, our cultural attributes, you know, the things, and then bring that to life through discussion with everybody on the team. So I conducted two of them, one with my team and a colleague's team, about 50 people. And then I conducted another one with for people in our organization who weren't able to be in their team meeting because maybe they were on vacation or sick. And so it was kind of like everybody who was is the cleanup, if yeah. you will, because we want to make sure everybody had that opportunity. And I think it's really important to have those moments in time to kind of connect the dots for people wherever they are in their journey, if you will, because there's always more to learn and unpack when it comes to culture. As you talk about the idea of always more to learn, it's so refreshing that at your altitude and the experience you've had that you're still willing to, I mean, lean in, that you are not resigned to, hey, this has worked in the past, I'm just going to apply it in this day and age, because as we've talked about before, the landscape in which we play is constantly shifting. I am wondering, right, you are now a master at cultivating talent and by extension, then attracting future talent. But that probably wasn't always the case in the early stages of your career as a leader inadvertently for one reason or another, maybe you stepped in it. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to maybe share a mistake that you've made as a leader and how that's been formative in then reshaping what you do differently now. Yeah. So I think to cultivate talent, you've really got to understand where people are at. And in fact, I, even as recently as the past year to 18 months, there are two things that happened. One is someone asked me for a promotion and I said, I don't think you're ready. And he said, well, you're wrong. I am ready. And I said, awesome. Prove it to me. Here's what I'd like to see. Invite me. You know, and I realized I was, well, we were having biweekly one-on-ones. I wasn't connected enough to what his individual impact was in the business. And it, caused me to reflect on what was missing in my approach to make sure that I'm on top of kind of what my team's actually delivering. So that that was kind of an interesting thing to see. And he absolutely delivered and showed me and it deepened our relationship. But that was a recent kind of 
situation. And then I've had the reverse too, where people want a promotion. It's like, no, you're not ready. Yeah, I think I am. No, you're not. And then a performance thing sometimes comes about. You can't retain top talent unless you address underperformers because top talent won't stick around. So I would say I've gotten better over the years at setting expectations. I have a leadership, my leadership principles, which I communicate when I take on a new team, because most leaders take on a new team that is intact and you go, okay, well, what do they need to know about me? So I talk about creating clarity and outcome-based expectations and, you know, no bad news, you know, like tell me, tell me in advance, like let, give me the opportunity to help problem solve the issue, people first, culture first, that kind of thing. But I've gotten a lot better at clarity of expectations. And it's not just make your number, do a, you know, create a three X pipeline forecast accuracy plus or minus 5%. Those are the hard numbers, but I also have the expectations of getting higher in the organization and building stronger and deeper relationships with the customer. And sometimes that's a challenge for people, for sellers. So I lean in to try to help problem solve, how are we gonna get to that CFO and build that relationship? And who do we know that knows them? And will our CFO reach out to them or can we orchestrate a meeting? So there's what I would call softer expectations that have to do with you know, leading, and mobilizing a cross-functional team of sellers that don't report into mm -hmm. my sellers and that kind of thing. So I, I think I didn't do that very well at the beginning. I've gotten much more clarity around that as I've gotten along in my career. Yeah. So I think about in your career, you've had chapters in sales and more recently in customer success. And in both of those functions, there is some fundamental, some contractual obligation to hit quota. And we can't avoid or neglect the bottom line. We are a business and we have with you know, shareholders if you're publicly traded or investors if you're private. Nonetheless, we have to at least acknowledge the gravity of that bottom line. And yet you're talking about going beyond purely singularly measuring people by that quota and thinking about other ways to activate them as human beings. And I'm wondering if you could expound upon how you do that while not maybe, I don't know, absolving them of their quote obligations. But as you said, you're setting expectations with clarity and you're also maybe investigating what it is that motivates them more. But for the listeners on the, I don't know, podcast, some of whom are leaders, some of them who are employees, how can they work better together so that it's not just, well, it's quota or bust. Because if it is quota or bust and someone isn't motivated economically or financially just by quota, we may lose that talent, right? So how do you do that? Yeah. So let me give you an example of, so I expect my sellers to do the whole job and I support them in that. So let's say they have a big presentation either at a, you know, to a customer or maybe they're, they put together a proposal for a customer that includes discounts or investments in terms of implementation services or things like that. The, final step in a big deal proposal, and we're talking big strategic accounts, is to do a presentation and ask for the investments to our most senior sales executive who runs our global sales organization. 
So I've seen some sales leaders and managers do that presentation on behalf of pitch it, if you will, but I have my seller do it. And I'm, and these are virtual calls and I'm in the background, I turn off my camera and I'm in the background, I take notes and action items so my seller can be present, you know, in the conversation. It also, it gives us an opportunity to debrief so I can coach them. Do we make our, our objective or not? So there's communication skills and observations. And I try to make sure that I have the opportunity to do that, whether it's you know an important customer proposal or a presentation to a customer. I want them to be front and center. So that's an example of supporting them to do the full job and not taking it away from them, if you will, like really empowering them to do it, but also supporting them so they can not have to worry about action items and be present. So that's just one example. You know, there's other things when I see too many emails go back and forth, like we sold something and now customer success is supposed to deliver it, but customer success needs you know, the sales team because there's not enough storage capacity or whatever. And there's this finger pointing. And I go, you know, time out. Let's get everybody on a call, talk through the customer situation. And so a couple of things. Email does not equal communication in my yeah. book. So there's no substitute for a conversation. Yeah. And it's not like swim lanes. It's more like a freeway with car lanes and we have to go back and forth, you know, in and out of lanes and work together as a team to keep the customer front and center. So how the teams work together is crucial to delivering results for the customer. And so when I talk about building trust and empowering my sellers, I expect them to do that across the teams that they lead, but also with customers. Find out what the customer wants on their terms. And so it's, in a sense, I think it's demonstrating the behavior you expect to see in your yeah. team. The phrase you used was building trust and the story you just shared, right? I'm going to let my seller take a big swing in this presentation and you also not recusing yourself entirely, but taking on a more administrative role, empowering them, giving them enough rope to truly hang themselves. I have to think that there have been times where that has yielded wildly successful results and maybe other times where you gave that seller the chance you put trust in their ability to rise to the occasion and maybe it doesn't always, I don't know, pan out the way you or they want. But talk to us a little bit about in a moment where you have attempted to build trust and maybe it wasn't that they burnt it or they misused it, but it didn't work out. I think that sometimes managers are a little leery when quota is on the line, revenue potential opportunities are on the line. Well, if I do it myself, then I know this will go the way I want, but we're not teaching our sellers official. We're not building trust. Has it ever been a situation where you gave someone that, that length of rope to hang themselves? They didn't. I don't know, go out in a blaze of glory. They actually went down in a ball of flames, but it actually proved to be a very valuable experience because they saw that in spite of a failure, you were building trust in them. Yeah, so I would say it's kind of nuanced yeah. because as I get as I get to know the different individuals on my team, I learn more about them. And so I've had situations where sellers have had forecasted deals and had a lot of pressure from, you know, the product team to forecast. But then as I unpacked it with them, it's like, 
this doesn't really sound like it should be forecasted. There's more risk. And so, you know, that can look like, okay, we're taking something out of forecast, but at the same time, I think it's my obligation as the manager to vet how solid a deal is and ask the questions. And there is pressure, obviously, that comes with a sales job. And sometimes we've got to figure out, okay, how are we going to go about covering a shortfall if something's you know, falls out. I have had conversations with people that they aren't necessarily representing the business accurately enough, or they're, I don't celebrate, you know, sandbagging because you, if you have this, you know, diving catch at the end or this, you know, deal that comes in, what you've done is you've um, not allowed us to get the investments we could have had by forecasting the, you know, more yeah. revenue. And so that's not really a great thing either. And so I would say the trust is built, you know, as they say, I guess I, maybe it's Brene Brown that says this trust is built in drops and lost in buckets. And so I think that, well, I've had a situation, you know, I'm just thinking about an individual that, gosh, this goes back a number of years ago where he didn't show up at a partner conference. He didn't show up to a 7 a.m. breakfast that he had set up for the partner. And I was the manager and we talked about it, but that kind of, it was hard for him to recover because what it demonstrated is he didn't have all the business practices to make sure he managed himself in such a way that to show up at a breakfast meeting. And then we, I ended up, frankly, being a bit more rigorous in my management with him. And he eventually decided this wasn't the right job for him. And he went on to do another job, which was a better fit. But if you don't have some business rigor or if you set up a meeting and then you don't show up and, you know, what he does on his personal time is his business. But I expect him to show up and be present for the business stuff that we, you know, have planned. So that was, that's maybe a, an example. The other thing is it's important to have a growth mindset. So if you put somebody on a performance plan, it's not, you know, the exit on, door on ramp. It's like, okay, give them the opportunity to step up and grow and make changes. Because otherwise you don't have a growth mindset, you're fixed. And so I've had employees go both ways. I've had employees step up, change, address the behavior gap and go on to be great. Again, that's nuanced. So not like, you know, all or nothing. Like it was a great, great seller that was making quota, but had some other areas that were significant enough to address. It's hard business, but it's exciting. And there's nothing for me my joy is helping, you know, other people develop, grow, learn, win together and figure out the messiness that comes with being a manager and comes with sales and business. I love that. Well, I just so appreciate the level of honesty that to be a manager is inherently messy. And yet, in spite of that, you authentically convey your joy in this role. And Microsoft is lucky to have you, Helen. So thank you for being so liberal in sharing all of your pearls of wisdom with our listeners, both people who are reporting into management and then managers who are aspiring to be better leaders. We are all better for it. So we have 
enough time for one final question. If you've listened to Reveal, you know what's coming as it's the question that we ask everybody, but I'm really eager to hear what your answer to this question is, Helen. And the question is, if you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? Exciting. Say more. There's, you know, okay, it's messy. There's never a dull moment. And so it's exciting because you wake up and how's your people doing? Are they able to perform or are they sick? How is it going? What's going on with the customer? Did someone have a merger acquisition or a divestiture or chapter 11? There's, you know, or Boeing was one of my customers. Goodness, look at Boeing. They had a lot of headwinds. And so that was a tough time, you know, economically yeah. for them. And how do we lean, lean in and, and be the best partner we can be given their situation so that when they come through the other end that we are, um, we've done a good job. So I think it's exciting because it's always changing and challenging and not easy. And, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. I like it. One of my favorite sales leaders said famously, said the only constant we can count on in this world is change. Yes, for sure. Well, Helen, it is a real treat to get to have you on Reveal. I speak for Karina, myself, and our entire team when I just want to convey our sincerest gratitude to you. Listeners out there, we have Helen Finucci from Microsoft, also best-selling author of Love your team, a survival guide for sales managers in the hybrid world. And it is, as of today, a five-star rating on Amazon. Let's go. So throw Helen some love, order that book. I know I'm going to order mine right after this. Thanks so much, Helen. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, head on over to gone.io. And like we heard... Give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.